wrong. <laughs> and I thought, well, and also with you. <laughs> but, I, but I didn't say that. Um, I just said, let's talk afterwards. And, and so well, we did a bit. Um, and I'm thinking, you come to church. I know your, your pastor told me you drive 30 miles to get here one way. And, and, and you've got a problem with Jesus being Savior. Well, here's what I think. I, I think that Jesus being Savior is an offensive concept. I just do. I, I know that I was adverse to it when it was first presented to me. And even though I've been a Christian for over 40 years, I'm still confronted with a negative reaction that I have toward my need for a Savior and when Jesus gets really specific. And this, unfortunately, is one of those passages. So go to the next slide, if you would, please. So just so you know, we're going to go through three sections in this rather long passage. The first section is going to be about what the kingdom of God is like. And that's fairly simple, straightforward, nothing much there. The middle section is the offensive part. And then we're going to go to the last section where uh, Jesus basically talks about what's going to happen in the future. All right? And then I'll come back to the middle section because that seems to be the part that sticks out to me and everybody who reads this passage. So uh, let's go to Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Just stay right there. Now, what if Bill Gates decided to have a meeting of all the most brilliant scientists in the world with his money, which is billions, backing it up? And Bill Gates said to all these assembled scientists, biologists, computer scientists, every kind of imaginable person who was excellent in those fields, I'll give you all the money you could possibly want if you make something for me. I want you to create an object the size of a pinhead that I can go out into my back garden and bury. And then after a while, as it's in the sun and I water it, I want this little pinhead item thing that you created to grow up to become a living and life-giving plant. Would he be able to do it? Will his brilliant scientists with billions of dollars at their disposal, be able to go back and to take inanimate material and produce something as simple as a garden plant? I think you know the answer to the question. The answer to the question is no, they could not. I don't care how smart you are, how much money you have, we are not smart enough to create life. There's no scientist in the world presently, or I'll say even in the future, who can create something as amazing as a tiny little mustard seed. This is miraculous. 
And so likewise, the kingdom of God is being compared to a tiny little mustard seed. The church has the power to do, because it's part of the kingdom of God, even though it's imperfect, things that no ordinary organization of people in the world can possibly accomplish. When you have the power of the very creator of the universe helping you along. And so this is the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. He's saying it's amazing. Not only is it small and will grow large, but it's going to provide a place of refuge for people. Birds will come and be able to take shade and shelter in its branches. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge. Let's go on to verse 20. Again, he, Jesus, asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, if you look in the scripture, they actually give a measurement, three of whatever in Hebrew. And, you know, we have been able to figure it out. And it's about 50 pounds of flour. 50 pounds of flour. You take a little bit of yeast into 50 pounds. Imagine how large that would be on your tabletop. We're talking, you know, 50 loaves of bread, perhaps. And a little bit of yeast works all the way through that large lump of dough so that it all rises just the way it's supposed to. And I just want to say that Jesus is making a statement here about the kingdom of God. It's like it's going to start out real small, like a little bit of yeast or like a mustard seed, and it's going to keep growing. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take years, maybe thousands of years. But eventually, it will spread over the entire face of the earth. I am not afraid of the U.S. government stamping out Christianity. doesn't faze me one bit. A lot of my conservative friends are really worried about that. I am not afraid of the Chinese communist government stamping out Christianity because I'm seeing what's going on. The church is flourishing in places like that where people are being persecuted. That's what happened in the Roman world a couple thousand years ago, and it will continue to go on. The church, because it's part of the kingdom, will continue to spread, and we don't have to worry about it. It's going to happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't do what we're called to do. I'm just saying it's unstoppable. And Jesus is making that point with these two little stories. That's the easy part. Let's go on to verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many I tell you will try to enter and will not be able to once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door you will stand outside knocking and pleading sir open the door to us but he will answer I don't know you or where you come from and then you will say we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, 
I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will come and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. Now, that section is difficult, is it not? Go back to the photo, if you would, Will. Just there you go, the narrow door. Because I'm looking at a door like that, and I'm wondering, <clears throat> could I get through there? Because I don't know if I could. It's exclusionary, what Jesus says. I don't like that. We'll come back and talk about that more. In the meantime, let's go on to verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, Leave this place and go someplace else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, I, I kind of thought the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus too. Um, at least most of them did. So maybe these guys were nice Pharisees who were trying to keep Jesus from getting killed. Or maybe they just saw a great opportunity to get him out of town for a while uh, by scaring him. Listen to Jesus' response. It's tough. No compromises. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll go back to that uh, slide with the chicken pictures, if you would. All right. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever seen a hen or any kind of waterfowl uh, put their chicks under their wings, but it really is a tender image. It's a maternal image. It's a, it's a, it's a female image for God. I know we call God the Father, but God doesn't mind, obviously, having some kind of female characteristics talked about in His Scripture for all time. And so Jesus is being very, very tender here. Right after He gets done kicking our ass in the passage before, which is why I have the uh, flying Mexican wrestler there. This came out during staff meeting. I think Jesse Heilman was the guy who said, we need to find this. And then Jesse Girl <laughs> found the pictures. So I thought I'd put one up or more. It's like this great kind of maternal, 
tender image. Go back. That's okay. You can go back to the ones. So. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Now, Jesus here is being a prophet. He is talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem in the future. Uh, he is saying that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and ransacked by the Romans, which happens in 70 A.D. All the Jews in that whole region are scattered. I think the Romans uh, probably went through 900 towns in and around Judea and uh, took what they wanted, destroyed what they wanted. Uh, Israel was desolate, just the way that Jesus the prophet predicted here. Now, it could be because they didn't recognize the Lord's coming, which is what he says in other passages. Kind of a heavy-duty consequence, I think. But today we're going to concentrate on that middle portion, the tough portion, where Jesus talks about the narrow door. So, this is one of those passages which causes Christian teens to go to Christian camp and get saved. And then next year they get re-saved. And then next year they get re-re-saved. And then next year they get re-re-re-saved because it scares them to death. And here's the interesting part. The guy asks the question, Hey, Jesus, are just a few people going to be saved? Do you notice that Christ never answers the question? He never gives the guy a direct answer. Basically, Jesus is saying, don't worry about how many people are getting into heaven. Worry about yourself. And I found this when you're talking to people about Jesus and they begin to feel uncomfortable because the spotlight is directly on them, on their hearts and where they are with God. They'll, they'll, they'll take the spotlight. It's like trying to take the spotlight and grab it in your hands and move it over here. Like, well, what about all these people in this part of the world who never heard the gospel? I think Jesus would say, let me worry about those people. Let's talk about you. Another thing that's troubling about this passage is that the owner of the house comes to the door after people are pounding on it, like the door's been shut, and you expect the owner of the house to say, you're late. But he doesn't. He says, I don't know you. And that's troubling to me too. I don't know you. Because I think God could forgive me for being late. But now Jesus is saying, hmm, it's not the same as me not knowing who you are. This is clearly a passage about getting into heaven. Why it's so troubling is the same reason. There was a survey done several years ago here in the U.S., and it was from Barna Research online, and uh, they said that half of all adults, 51%, believe that if a person is generally good, does enough good things for others over the course of his or her life, that that person will earn a place in heaven. 
Obviously, Jesus will not agree. Here's the troubling part with this parable as well. It's not about what you can do. It's about who you know. And that bothers me because I've gone for jobs and applied for positions in companies. Based upon my resume, I might have been the best guy for the job with the most experience, but who gets the job? Well, the nephew of the owner. And that bugs me because it's not about what they can do. It's about who they know. And then I come to this parable and I find out heaven's kind of the same thing. It's not about what you can do. It's about who you know. And that doesn't seem fair until I think about what I'm really like. <laughs> I'm thinking, wait a minute, I don't think anybody I know is worthy to get into heaven. Like, we're all a bunch of screw-ups. Nobody is worthy. Nobody can work themselves. Nobody's good enough to get into heaven. I mean, if, if God let the people, the 51% in, I mean, it would probably cease being heaven. They would mess it up. So he's got to find another way. And obviously knowing Jesus is the way that he's chosen. In particular, the troubling verse is verse 24. Verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. That's just a shocking statement. Because what it's saying is there are many people who are going to want to be in the kingdom of God. But they're not going to be able to get in. I mean, obviously this is after the door closes. So Jesus says, make every effort, strive to enter through the narrow door. He makes it seem so difficult. What is this about wanting to enter and not being able to enter? This makes salvation seem very, very hard. And that's not what I heard or you heard in youth, in youth group growing up, probably. If you were part of an evangelical Christian youth group, you probably heard it was very easy to become a Christian. If you go to the high number channels late at night, you will hear that it's very easy to become a Christian. Just say the simple prayer and you're in. Sometimes as simple as four lines. In some churches, if you just have a cognitive understanding of propitiatory atonement, if you just understand that God died for you in Jesus Christ, that's all it takes to get to heaven. Just with your own mind, just understand. Okay, God came to earth in Jesus Christ and died for me so that I could get in. That's all you need to do. Well, the Bible says even the devils understand that. But that doesn't get them in. 
it gets even more troubling. So when we're talking about being saved, what are we saved from? If you're paying attention to what's being said on the internet, it seems like Jesus Christ came to save you from being unfulfilled as a person. You're being saved from a dissatisfying life. You're being saved from poverty to prosperity. You're being saved from feeling inadequate about yourself. You're being saved from some kind of purposeless existence. But that's not what you're saved from, according to Jesus in this parable. It seems to me that what he's saying is, you're being saved from God. You're being saved from God, by God. We're being saved from God the Judge by God the Redeemer. We are being saved from God's wrath. It's not about how we feel in this life. It's about eternity, and it's about getting into heaven that we're talking about. And so Jesus starts with this amazing analogy. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The door to the kingdom is very narrow. As a matter of fact, it's so narrow, it's hard to get through. This is not about passively receiving something. Now, let me point out that this is a facet of the truth most of us don't want to look at. I mean, yes, the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's John 3.16. Anybody who believes... But what's the struggle Jesus is talking about? I mean, the gift of God is free. It doesn't mean that the road to get there is easy. Jesus uses a word here that's translated in the Greek by Luke, agonisma. Agonisma. It's where we get the word agonize in English. It's a pretty strong word. When we say somebody is agonizing, we would say that that person's in an intense struggle. Agonisma, back in that day, was a term for athletics. It was uh, a term used for competing. Elsewhere in the New Testament, agonisma is used to describe hand-to-hand combat. It's a word for fight. It's a word that means to engage in a fight. It's a striving. What's the striving about? All we got to do is go back a few chapters to Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Jesus explains the fight exactly. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must 
deny himself. She must deny herself, pick up the cross, and follow me. That's it. You want to be saved? Struggle to deny yourself. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial. It's the end of life as you have known it when you come to Jesus. The war is on. The battle over your soul is now raging. Jesus says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. They will not fight to defeat their own pride. I don't need that. Their own self-righteousness. I've done a lot of good deeds. Their own love of sin. Their own will. Their own desire to control and manipulate their own lives and the lives of everybody around them. They will not fight to win the battle over their own wills. The battle over their own flesh. The battle over their own sin. And so they will not enter the kingdom of God. True story, there was a Billy Graham crusade in Melbourne, Australia. And Billy Graham's team went and did what it normally does. You've probably seen it many times. I mean, Billy Graham majors in salvation, right? And so there was a letter to one of the papers in Melbourne from a person who had been exposed to all the stuff that Billy Graham's team had just got done exposing them to. And this is what the paper printed. And I quote, After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters coming concerning him and his mission, I'm heartily sick of the type of religion that insists that my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I had never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I am wallowing in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If, in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. That's what Jesus is talking about. That kind of person will only come to their senses once they hear the sound of the doors of heaven closing. But Jesus also said this in John 6:37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. John 6:40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up or her up on the last day. 
Even in the Old Testament, we get the same message. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. It seems to be a time-sensitive kind of a thing. We've got this lifetime to make a decision that will affect us for eternity. The gospel is not that Jesus wants to come to you and make you everything that you want to be. That is not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is give up everything that you are. Give up everything that you hope. Give up everything you dream of and want to be. Abandon yourself completely to God, to His sovereign grace and His purpose. And this is where the real battle takes place in the soul. This is what's agonizing. It's a battle to repent. It's a battle to be unselfish, to give up your own will, to give up control. It's a battle to abandon sin. I remember taking seriously the claims of Christ as a young man and thinking, do I really want to give up control of my life because I've got plans? And if there's a God, he would not be happy with those plans. Will I submit myself to Jesus' rule? Maybe because I took Jesus' words so seriously, and because I agonized over whether or not to become a Christian, he finally revealed himself to me. It wasn't easy believism on my part. It took a sovereign move of Jesus Christ to let me know that what I was struggling with was really worth it and following Him was really the way to go. But you know, Jesus obviously wants us to struggle. Whoever wishes to save her life shall lose it. You try to hold on to your life the way you want it, and you lose it. It is a wise man, Jim Elliot said, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So my encouragement to you folks is to persevere to the end. Struggle with this faith in Jesus. You have my permission to agonize over it. To go back and forth, two steps forward, one step back, four steps forward, five steps back, whatever it takes. You have my permission to struggle. This is a place where you can struggle and we can be honest about it. Because here's the deal. It's not really about anything other than knowing Jesus. You can struggle all you want. It's about knowing Christ. He reveals himself to those who want to know him. I think that the way to know that you've lost your faith, if you ever had any, is when you don't care, when there's no struggle. That's when you're in danger. Now, 
I don't do this very often, but we've got a nice little intimate group here, and uh, we've got a little bit of time. So I am going to attempt to answer any questions you might have concerning this very difficult parable of Jesus. So if something's been bothering you or confusing you about what I've just got done saying, please feel free to raise your hand and ask me a question directly. I'll try and repeat the question for the sake of uh, the podcast. Go ahead, Tracy. What if you have things in your life, like dreams, about what you might be able to do? Does that mean that you shouldn't work toward them? I don't think uh, that means this at all. I mean, I I honestly believe that uh, it's good to have dreams. What I was referring to was dreams about your own self-fulfillment that would take you in an independent way, away from Christ as opposed to struggling to find and be dependent upon Christ. Um, Obviously, I think God gives each one of us a place in his church, uh, certain gifts that are good for the body, and usually dreams that go along with using those gifts. And I think that's for the betterment of his kingdom here on earth. But that's not the same, for example, as my dreams of making as much money as I could as a young man, screwing as many women as I possibly could, and drinking as much alcohol as I possibly could get down my throat. Those are the kind of dreams that I think were antithetical to struggling with the Lordship of Christ. Does that make things any clearer? All right. Anybody else? Yeah, Adam. So the the question has to do with uh, what's our part in this whole salvation thing versus what God does, because it certainly seems in some places like God does it all for us. Uh, It's totally grace. It's a free gift. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. And all of a sudden, this passage is talking about agonizing to strive to enter through the narrow door, right? I know. I know. It bothers me, too. It's why I don't want to preach passages like this. Um. The thing that actually makes me, uh, I guess, joyful about this is that it reflects my own experience, that that coming to Christ is is a struggle. And, you know, I I remember, it's funny, I think it's, it's, 
you know, hindsight uh, versus foresight. So when I'm looking forward to what it means to become a Christian or to follow Jesus, all I can see is the struggle. Like, man, I got to give up that. I got to give up this. I got to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I'm seeking like crazy. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to Bible studies. I'm arguing with Christians. I'm doing all this work to try and figure out if Jesus is real or not. And then one day, boom, he reveals himself. Now, on the other side of that, I look back and go, wait a minute. Why was I struggling to seek so hard? Could it have been that maybe God put something in me by his own sovereign grace that allowed me to struggle through that? Maybe. And so as far, the, the, the farther I get in Christ, the more I see it as really uh, God kind of did it all for me. And, and I did very, very little. If anything, is there anything even in me that desires what is good? Because I kind of desire what is wrong most of the time, left to my own devices. So it's a, it's a mystery. And in this particular passage, we are talking about that side of it. It is not easy believism here at all. Yeah, Bethany. Why is there a time limit? You know, that's a difficult uh, question because you're thinking, wait a minute, we're talking about eternity, which is, you know, compared to my lifespan, billions and billions and trillions of years. And so what you're telling me, God, is, is my eternity is dependent upon choices I make in this temporal life that you've given me. That seems hardly fair. I don't know what else to say about it. It seems unfair to me, too. That God would somehow say, okay, I'm giving you, you know, roughly 70 years. Some of you are going to have less than that, way less than that. Some of you are going to have way more than that. And this is this time span you have to come to me. Now, I take comfort in this, Bethany, is that the heart of God is good. I've seen his character. You know, and, and I'll just go on a flight of fancy. This is not scripture, but let's draw from something maybe you've already experienced. You guys ever been in a car wreck or in a traumatic situation and seen how all of a sudden time seems to slow down, like you can see the car spinning slowly as it goes down the road and you see this part of your car fly up and go over this way you can see the other passenger in your car scream and start to move toward you because of the centrifugal force have you ever been in situations like that where where time all of a sudden seems relative and even though it was like a split second you saw it like it lasted 15 minutes ever noticed those kind of things and I wonder sometimes, in the moments before death, if time doesn't slow down, maybe, for some people, out of the mercy of God, or if a person is lying in their comatose and we all think that he's or she is unresponsive and not able to communicate, I wonder if spirit to spirit, soul to God, there's something going on, there's something being revealed, there's something of a communication that's going on in the spirit world that we're totally unaware of. I mean, I've been in hospital rooms, I've been at people, people's deathbeds, and you know, it seems like maybe that kind of stuff does happen. They start talking to people who aren't there. 
They see things in the room that you can't see. And we say, well, the hallucinations are going, well, maybe they are and maybe they're not. So I trust God because He's good and loving and just and merciful. And that everybody who will come to Him is allowed to come to Him. Even if we never know what goes on. I mean, what about babies that die in utero? How does God work that one out? I just trust that because He's got a good heart, that He works it out. In the meantime, it's kind of like this guy saying, Hey, Jesus, will just a few people be saved? Jesus is saying, Tell you what, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about you. Because you're here listening to me. You're here reading the words of Jesus, listening to this sermon, and uh, you've got a decision to make. Any more questions? Yeah, Todd. I think this works out locationally, that there's literally a locked door that people cannot get in to the kingdom. Uh, or do I see it more as like a heaven-hell thing? Um, I'm going to say my opinion. This is metaphor. That Jesus is using things they know to describe what they don't know. Um, earthly things to describe eternal things. One person said this morning uh, that was Jeremy Jackson, who had heard in some sermon in the past that the narrow door was the servant's door and uh, that you would enter in uh, because you were part of the household and you had a place in the household uh, and that we're all servants in the kingdom of God and that makes it I'm going, great, sure, that works. <laughs> I mean, it's a metaphor. I think it's, all, it's fine. Um, but this certainly isn't the only metaphor that he uses for the kingdom. Um, so I'm going to go with, nah, I don't think it's literal. I think what he's saying, though, is true. It's figurative, but it's true. All right. We're going to take communion right now. The reason that I like taking communion after a message like this is because we reaffirm that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by Him. It is by His death on the cross that has paid the penalty for our sins that we are able to enter through the narrow door. It is by knowing Him, it is by taking Him into our bodies. Again, I think this is metaphor, but we are physically taking the body and the blood of Jesus 
into us. We're that close where the bread and the juice go down into our stomachs and it gets digested and then transferred by the bloodstream to every single cell in our bodies. The communion you take today will shortly be in every single cell of your body. That is knowing Jesus on an extremely intimate level. While we're taking communion, if you have a prayer need, maybe there's someone that you know who needs to come and bow the knee before Jesus, go through that agonizing torment of getting through the narrow door. There'll be folks here in the prayer room during communion that you can come and pray for that person. Or if you have any other prayer concerns, please come and let us pray with you. And let me close with this prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your Son to come and provide a way for us into your kingdom. Let us never take that for granted. Let us always be grateful. For even in the name Eucharist is the Greek word for thanks. We receive you, Jesus, thankfully. Let us know you not just now, but for eternity. And it's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.